0: Welcome back to the podcast. Last two weeks we've been listening to Stuart and his journey of discipleship from uh, the outskirts of Brisbane to a movement in South Asia and a, a podcast uh, filled with principles and ideas of how to make disciples and how to see movement take place. Uh, Stuart, thanks again for joining us this week. Um, tell, us, tell us the next stage of the journey from movement in South Asia to then jumping back into
1: the the church in Australia. Uh, the one thing that <clears throat> causes us problems is the requirement that we have to be obedient uh, to whatever the Lord is asking us to do. And I was determined to do that, if nothing else. And uh, it was so exciting. Uh, I've condensed in the earlier podcast 14 years of trials and errors and mistakes and ups and downs. But uh, as we're in that 14th year, uh, things were really moving. We were seeing things that had never been seen in the whole of history. And multiplication was starting, and multiplication of groups was starting, not just individuals. And then, uh, back in Australia, uh, a church uh, called me to be their pastor, and I was not interested in that at all. Uh, my wife and I had committed ourselves to this country. We were seeing fruit at last. Life wasn't easy, as we lived in our little 10-metre-by-10-metre-square cement house block, but uh, it was so fulfilling. And of course, when this church issued its call, I said, no, thank you, I'm not interested, and normally churches go away, oh, okay, we'll try someone else, but this one didn't. They kept coming back again and again. Three times I said no, and three times they came back to me, and After three times, uh, no, the fourth time they came back, they cheated. They said, "Stuart, will you at least pray about this?" Oh no! (laughs) And so I committed to prayer. I won't go into the the struggle of the next ten months. Uh, My family very quickly saw that God was in this. I didn't want to see that. I was so happy and contented with the the excitement of life in that country and what we're seeing. Uh, But uh, I remember vividly the last night and by that time I had so many fleeces out before the Lord like Gideon. I mean, he had one or two. I had a great stack of fleeces, any (laughs) sign that I asked for, immediately the Lord granted it. Had the Australian wool board known uh, about all the fleeces I was sitting on, the the international price of wool would have collapsed. (laughs) So most reluctantly, I came to the point where I acknowledged God was in this and I, I would have to move. I didn't understand why at that time, but I gave it one more shot I went out into the rice fields and I walked all night in the rice field (laughs) complaining to God, saying, look, I know I'm not much of a missionary. I know I haven't been very fruitful, haven't been very successful in terms of what we've produced out here. I know I'm a dirty, lousy, rotten sinner. But would you so chastise me, think so poorly of me, as to ask me to leave this and be thrown on the scrap heap? of Australia, down there in that city of Melbourne, where there are so many huge churches, they're mostly empty, a lot of them (laughs) closer to the city you go. Why would you do that? What a punishment that is. (laughs) But as the sun came up, I realised my arguments didn't hold much water and I consented to go. And I came back to Australia not knowing why, other than just pure obedience And as I walked up to my new assignment back here, a church, a good church, several hundred people, and um, not knowing what you're supposed to do as as a pastor, of course. uh, You can't talk about missiology or other religions (laughs) Sunday by Sunday because people aren't interested in that. But as I walked up to the church on that first Sunday, the Lord breathed into me, my spirit is not in this place. And I said, have I just made the biggest mistake in my life? Have I got the wrong address? What, what, what do you mean? Silence. And for three months, nothing, as I struggled to adjust to the new environment of Australia. And uh, I encountered unbelief wherever I went that people in Australia are not used to moving in the supernatural. I mean, uh, they, they say they are. They say they believe the Bible on that. But in fact, we're practical atheists in so many ways. And having been there for a few months, I remember the Lord spoke with me and said, now, one, it was late one night about 11 o'clock, pick up your pen and start to write. And I wrote 12 pages. And the Lord said, now read that. I was what you call an amanuensis. When Paul wrote his letters, you might notice at the at the end of them, uh, he'll say, now, this is, this is me, Paul, writing with my own hand. So he'd been dictating. And the person who writes the dictation is called the amanuensis. Well, on that night, I was the amanuensis of the Holy Spirit. The Lord says, that's what I want you to do. And <laughs> it was a blueprint of a church the like of which the nation had never seen. Uh, We didn't have churches of that size. And I knew that where we were, we were already too small for the property and the neighbours hated us. And I said, well, Lord, if you want to do that, uh, we'd have to relocate. And the people in this church, they they love the bricks and mortar of the church, I think, more than they actually love the Lord himself. That was probably a harsh, unnecessary criticism on my part, but that's the way I felt about it. And I said, Lord, you know, I, I can't even move a vase of flowers on the communion table unless I get permission from 20 committees. We've tried to build a toilet for the disabled. <laughs> We've argued about it for four years. Now a lot of people are disabled. And I said, Lord, if I go to suggest this to these people, uh, they're going to kill me. <laughs> and he, I remember very clearly he said, Stuart, this, yes, you'll have to relocate the church. But the move is not about geography. The move is about I'm going to use this to stir all the spiritual sludge which is collected in this place, this very well-known church over the decades, and you are my stirring rod. And I said, Lord, just go ahead and kill me now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, it's a long story, but from that time in, uh, back in the early 80s, Uh, To where it is today, the church, yes, it's relocated. It's on 16 acres of land and uh, 10 I don't know how many tens of millions of dollars it cost uh, to do all that, but the Lord was good and uh, (laughs) I nearly died many times over. But he's done it. But that was okay. But then what sort of a church do you want? Because my priority is making disciples, Mm. not just keeping everybody happy. And how do you do that? When you're the pastor of a church and already you've got all these programs and staff and stuff is running all over the place, you've got to take control somehow. And it's like juggling half a dozen balls in the air at once, if not a dozen of them. And so for the first year I did nothing other than try to learn what it looks like to be an Australian to pastor of a church. And then at the end of the second year, I thought, well, I'll make disciples either through some a new convert or perhaps uh, I can find other things using the strategy. I saw that they had small groups in the church. That's a structure. And so I, I thought, well, I'll start there. Uh, and so I called all the, the cell group leaders together for Saturday morning breakfast and uh, seven o'clock Saturday mornings, and over a period of six weeks, I just got them talking about what would it look like to be having groups that were winning and making disciples and multiplying. And every time they gave me a key uh, principle that I was looking for, I put it on the whiteboard. And then at the end of that time, We had six of the main principles there. And I said, now, who would like to be a part of that sort of structure where we're seeing things really move, not just adding a convert here and there, but the the multiplying disciples through the the cell group structures? And they said, no, none of us. (laughs) I said, so you want to keep doing what you've always done? Yeah, yeah. And mostly, of course, cell groups become fellowship groups. Mm. Uh, they become imbalanced. They become introverted. Uh, when I was preaching, yeah, I was using that evangelistic gift again, and, and I had so many new believers, and I said to one of the cell group leaders, I said, look, I've, I've got some ladies here I can't possibly... Take them. Could, could you nurture them through your ladies' cell group? And they said, no, Pastor Stewart, you don't understand. We've been meeting together for 25 years. We're into a very deep Bible study. And I thought, <laughs> wow, they've, they've got a deep Bible study. They've dug themselves a grave. And, but, but the church <laughs> honours deep Bible study. So none of them wanted to join me. So I said, okay, well, if any of you change your mind, um, come along to my home next Saturday morning at six o'clock. Now, I, I deliberately set a very high bar. It's the middle of winter. It gets very cold and rainy and that in Melbourne in the middle of winter. So they'd have to get out of bed at five o'clock. It was just a means I used of setting a high bar. I didn't have time to muck about with people who weren't serious. And uh, so two guys turned up and I started to work with them. And, uh, of course, that meant at the end of a time there there were four and and more time there were eight and then there were 16. And so the process started there. But if you're a pastor listening to this, understand, you'll then be accused of making favourites because the word will go out, hey, the pastor is meeting with these people. They're his favourites. Well, I've got to meet with people if I'm going to disciple them. If you think you can... Be a, a member of some group that's only going to meet once a fortnight. You miss one meeting, so you're meeting once a month. Don't kid yourself that you're actively dis- in a discipling process. The, a minimum is a, is a, a one time together a week. Preferably, there should be a lot more when you're in one another's lives. But of course, then I was reported to the governing body of the church that Stuarts dividing the church because the group became known. It's growing from the inside. It's multiplying. <laughs> and But fortunately, right back there at the beginning, um, I'd said, look, any of you, you want to join at any time, you're welcome to join, but we're going to follow these principles. If you don't want to join, that's fine. But will you give me permission to do what I want to do? Oh, yes, yes. Well, then when they reported me to the governing body, I had to front up and I say, but hang on a minute. The deal was they were free to join. They gave me permission to do this and, and they chose not to and they want to stay out there. So I'm not dividing the church. I'm growing a new church within the shell, the structures of what we have here. And so I got away with it. <laughs> but uh, that was the, the goal, again, making disciples uh, the strategy of, of disciple making and, and the structure that I had to work with was the cell group system of the church, and of course, some of these cells they they grow and they multiply. And from the very beginning, they all knew that if they're in some group which wasn't. Um, uh, dividing within 12 months, uh, that wasn't healthy. If if they were still together after two years and hadn't divided, they were on the death throes. And so from the beginning, the, whoever was the leader, he had to have his associate leader, and and he'd be discipling the associate leader. He was his apprentice, and he'd take over uh, when the divisions occurred. So uh, there's a lot more to it than that. But that was the basic uh, structures and strategy I was following. And it just kept growing and growing. And when you think about a church in Australia where I'm told here in Melbourne we close a church every month and I'm not surprised at that, mm, yeah. the average size of church in Australia is about uh, <clears throat> all 70 people mm. and mostly they're over 70 years of age. When I became a believer, uh, it was something like I've seen the stats that about uh, 80% or higher of people had some connection to church. Well, today in Australia, the commitment level is down to 7.5% and dying rapidly. Mm. This census, which we've just had here in 2021, will show us for the first time that the number of people of no faith now outnumber those who have faith and Christians, those who say they're Christians, are now a minority and sinking rapidly. Mm. So the church is dying, not just here, but in mm. Europe and in America, all around the Western world, uh, they're walking blindfolded toward the precipice of death unless mm. something is changed. And one of the things that need changing is not evangelism so much but disciple-making mm. because in the Reformation we discovered the Word of God. And, and then in the Western world through people like John Wesley and Whitfield, we discovered evangelism. And we evangelicals settled on that. And then in the uh, beginning of the 20th century, we discovered Pentecostalism. So Pentecostalism was going to save us, Uh, the power of the Spirit. But that also has waned a lot in the West now. And so uh, we're back to where we started. Discipleship, multiplying disciples, is what needs to be rediscovered and re-implemented. That's the only thing which is going to turn our situation around. Just wonderful. What
0: What were some of those principles that you wrote on the whiteboard that you then started to implement with those group of people?
1: Well, the, those those principles, I don't know if I can remember them all now. <laughs> You've got a penetrating question there, Dave. But I was speaking into a situation where they were small group leaders mm. and what, what I was going for were things like, okay, um, a small group ideally should be made up of people who live in the same street. Pass to your own street. Draw your converts from your own street, rather than oh, one member comes from this side of the city, another from another side of the city, and all that sort of stuff. It was an artificial coming together. So uh, that the we we would aim to have a cell group meeting uh, in every street in our catchment area. Um, I should add that as time went by, I saw that that wasn't uh, appropriate because people like what we call homogenous groups, that's people from the same background. In other words, a banker would much rather meet with another banker. A mechanic would like to meet with mechanics. Uh, Someone who who digs ditches doesn't feel comfortable with someone who who uh, works in a high-rise tower behind a big wooden desk and wears a suit. So, But people from the same cultural, occupational backgrounds, they love to get together. After some years, I gave up on that principle and just let people flow to the homogenous uh, thing. Um, other things were that all groups were meant to grow and uh, therefore they should... Um, be, if they're growing properly, reaching out, they would be multiplying, uh, within one year, preferably a year, uh, two years max. In other words, we exist not for the sake of ourselves. We exist for those who are yet to join us. Mm. Otherwise, you suffer from the deadly disease of koinonitis from the Greek word koinonia. That's fellowship. Mm. <laughs> you have a surfeit or an oversupply of fellowship and it chokes you. Mm. You cease to see the lost for their real condition. Um, another thing was that um, whoever was leading one of these groups, they would first go through uh, training. It doesn't just happen automatically because in those days we didn't have any, any structure of training. Who, whoever wanted to lead would lead. And, um, but, of course, that was ineffective. And so uh, we developed – keep in mind this is church land. <laughs> uh, we developed um, a 20-week Uh, training process which of course has had all the discipleship principles in it and uh, they had to meet uh, at six o'clock of a Saturday morning. (laughs) Again we're sorting out those who are going to be serious and they had memory verses to go through and all that good stuff and at the end uh, they had books to read and some small classes that we'd set up. At the end an evaluation would be made. They weren't automatically going to be released to a group just because they'd sat in some, what you'd call a 20-week seminar. Mm. Uh, we were carefully observing how these people were responding, even though we'd done a lot of sort-outs. So it was those sorts of things in the small group structure mm. uh, that it would be meaningful. That it, it had to be prepared to meet once a week. And then when they met... Uh, they would they would have uh, particular um, things to do. It wasn't going to be just Bible study. It had to be that balanced stuff that I talk about. Meeting together gives the fellowship. The Bible study had to have a practical outcome. So you got the fellowship. Got the, and yes, you have to spend time in prayer and worship. And and I had them also doing good deeds, actually going out amongst the unwashed, doing things in the community as groups, showing the love of Jesus, practical Christianity. Uh, and what else did we have in there? But uh, all of that was geared, of course, to um, bringing them to a place of commitment and maturity. Oh, here's another thing, because prayer was so important I said, um, now, I want you to meet with me once a week just for prayer. And uh, I'm not talking about some church midweek prayer meeting. Uh, We're going to meet and uh, we're going to spend time. Well, it's hard as the number of disciple-making leaders increases, uh, it's hard to get a common time. So I said, okay, well, uh, how would 6 o'clock do on a Wednesday morning, say, I forget what morning it was, and, of course, you had the tradies there, the guys on construction site and so forth. They said, oh, too late for us. We're on the road. Uh, we've got to be on on site uh, starting work by 7, so we can't be meeting with you at 6 o'clock. That's too late. Okay, what's good for you? 5 o'clock. All right, we'll meet with 5 o'clock. <laughs> so I'd meet with the blue-collar guys, as we say. That's the tradespeople and the labourers. and We'll meet with you at 5 o'clock. You go off, and then at six o'clock, all the white collar guys come in, and because uh, they don't have to be in their offices till nine o'clock. Mm. And then I said, There's another thing that once a week you're going to be meeting with me for training. That's because uh, I'm the senior pastor, and uh, that has a huge impact. But Yonggi Cho used to say, If you're operating a discipling model through the strategy or the structure of small groups, you can't expect your leaders to be giving out more than they're taking in, and you have to be putting into their lives. Otherwise, they will run dry very quickly. So that places a lot of stress on, on me, of course, as the the key to all of these meetings and so forth. But, uh, yeah, I thank God it sustained, and oh. I don't know how many hundreds of small groups we ended up with. Yeah. But I used to say to the leaders, because I was meeting with them now, when you come to church on Sunday, just remember this. We are not a church which has small groups. We are small groups that come together to celebrate on Sunday. Mm. It's a coming together with small groups. So I'm not looking out there on a big crowd of thousands of people, which is what we ended up with, mm. but I'm looking out on are my leaders here, are my disciple makers here? Mm. And I don't look into their groups. It's their job to look out and see, is my team here? Are my converts here? Are my Mm. growing disciples here? And my job, of course, is is to look just for them. So this takes uh, a lot of pressure out. But, hey, Mm. it worked Mm. wonderfully and uh, Mm. lots of mistakes there and learning along Mm. the way too. But, yeah, I guess that was um, part of the journey.
0: So you've alluded to... The church in the west and we particularly look at you know western europe and australia and uh the the figures over the last 10 years point to well over a thousand churches have been lost in our little nation of australia Mm. and um you know the startling figures of one for one person in their 20s there's 10 people in their 70s in the church and those kind of uh figures that point us to um Uh, Yeah, quite a quite a uh, the alarm bells are ringing. What are we doing? As I I recognise you, Stuart, as as a a prophet, I I see you as being able to speak generally and broadly. um, Having been with you for numbers of years, Um, what what do you say about the church in the West? And knowing that this third podcast we're doing is really about church and how to do this in the church, and we're looking at. helping pastors and, and leaders in in the Western environment. Um, what are some of the big picture ideas that you think we need to rediscover, re-embrace, um, uh, redo in the church?
1: Mm. Uh, I, I should add, Dave, I've written, not in detail like this, but I've, my most recent book is called Daring to Disciple. Mm. Um, and you'll find that on my website or if you're in some religious bookshop or you can buy it online. Daring to Disciple um, is the name of it. And my website is all lowercase dr, com. You can find it there. And, uh, you'll get it cheaper from me than you will from anywhere else. Or oh, furthermore, I'll sign a copy if you buy one. My banker will tell you my signature's not worth anything. But, hey, consider this, if the next time I'm in Afghanistan or somewhere and I die as a martyr, then my signature might be valuable. <laughs> so um, the, the things which I would say we need to rediscover, firstly, there is the priority of prayer. Mm. Uh, before I did anything back here in the church in Australia, I realised we had become prayerless. It was a church when I came of several hundred good people, but I couldn't find a prayer meeting anywhere. I mean, there might have been one. I'm not saying there's not. They were good people. Mm. But I'm talking about serious, intentional prayer. (laughs) When you look at what God has done, uh, and I've made it a, a lifetime passion of mine studying church history. The big revivals have always come when a group of people in a far off, God-forgotten place have gathered to beseech God. And he doesn't, his spirit doesn't fall at the major watering holes, the popular places where the crowds gather, the big churches, the name places. No. He starts with a a little group of people in a far-off place. The fire falls, the power of the Spirit comes, it ignites and the fire goes out across nations and millions get swept in and it's the same principles. I've written this one up in... um, the book, I mean, a little booklet, actually. It's only a $7 quick thing. Uh, the Prayer of Obedience. How, how, whether it's the Welsh revival, or even here in Australia, we've had some prior to the Welsh revival. We influence the Welsh revival in Australia. Uh, we influence the Ramabai Mukti Mission in India from Australia, or the big revivals of the Wesleys or the Whitfields, or uh, I, I'm talking about major nation changing revivals. Always, it started with passionate, persevering prayer. Mm. If you come into our century, the sort of things that that we're seeing now, there was Korea at the beginning of the 20th century. It was a closed hermit kingdom amongst the first missionaries who went there were those who went out, Presbyterians from, from Melbourne. One of them was killed. You couldn't gain entry and so forth, but God favoured them and a few got in and started and in that one century the nation of Korea now we can only talk definitively of South Korea because we cut off from what's happening in the north but in the South Korean situation they went from zero And then the church started to grow and there was bickering and fighting amongst the missionaries and amongst the national leaders. And in 1907, there was a a critical meeting in Pyongyang, which is the capital of North Korea today. And And a national leader got on his face and he repented before God and asked... God to forgive him and his brothers for what he had said, his critical spirit, a missionary joined him. The spirit fell and came onto that meeting and never left. And those guys learned to pray. And so, extraordinary ways. You, whenever you go to Korea and you join in their prayer meetings, they get up at four, they're in their churches by five, they they pray from five through to seven, then they go off to work, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Prayer, prayer, prayer. And then that church has gone from zero to 40% of the nation in the 20th century. That's pretty mm. impressive. Mm. You go to China and and there... The prayer life of those people is unbelievable. I've been in places, I don't want to be too specific, but uh, living in, in difficult places there. And they'll pray throughout the night. That's normal for them to mm. do these sort of things. So prayer is the key. And, of course, China has the fastest growing, well, the, now the largest growing church in the world. God has, while we've all been looking at the political economic uh, growth of China, a few had noticed the church that God has brought into being once the bamboo curtain went down uh, in 1953 and we never knew what was happening until many decades later, we all thought the church would die under Mao Zedong's persecution and so forth. But the more the church is persecuted, the more it grows. That's a lesson of history repeated again and again. But their prayer life is unbelievable. So we need to rediscover Prayer and, and with the work I established here in Australia, my goal was always to have twenty-four-seven prayer every day of the week, around the clock. We didn't quite achieve that, mm-hmm. but as I said, you know, we work with the people. The leaders were there with me every week. The women would come out to pray during the day because if you had mothers or housewives, or they couldn't come out at those other times. But we we moved around that, so we tried to have a goal of twenty-four-seven prayer going on there in the church so that prayer is the first Mm. thing the second thing uh, I would say is intentional discipleship you don't Mm. learn this stuff in theological colleges you don't learn it in bible schools Mm. Uh, they really ought to have have courses on this rather than some of the other things we do but uh, unless we are going to make disciples who multiply we we really have not much hope and uh, when you study, in, in my book I lay out there, uh, here are the six conditions that Jesus calls people's disciples. They're quite startling, actually. Mm. And that's our goal of reproducing, by the Spirit's help, uh, that sort of person. Those two things, the evangelism, even the evangelical movement has not saved us. Yes, uh, evangelical people grew for a while. and Then we had liberal theology, which sort of, took a lot of people into cuckoo land or whatever and we've got our share of that in every generation Mm. but the evangelicals haven't gone anywhere the most evangelical nation in the world is uh, the united states but in this last year the the biggest denomination there is the southern baptists and last year, the Southern Baptists baptized. That's a, a growth indicator. They baptized the same number of people that they baptized in 1948. Hmm. That tells you how far backwards they're going. Yes. They have the beliefs, but not the of the systems and all that. When you think of the 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 wealth that we have, the facilities we have, the technology we have and yet we're going backwards. Yes, we've got a few standout churches, but that's not what it's about. It's a grassroots, grassroots movement of uh, making disciples. So evangelicalism, if it's such, gives us a right belief uh, system. It gives us a right doctrine, but we need the, the reality behind those doctrines, of course, our Pentecostal brothers and sisters—they uh, would say oh, we have the Holy Spirit. Great. Okay. Well, now what we did there in the seventies, when the Charismatic movement came in, because Pentecostalism was waning a little bit then, uh, Charismatic movement came in, and both Pentecostalism and the charismatic movement domesticated the Holy Spirit. We turned it in on ourselves. Mm. We wanted a good time, more and more filling of the Holy Spirit. We became drunk on the Spirit. But we forget that the Holy Spirit is given actually to take us out to where the unbelievers are. But we Mm. turned it in. And, of course, that has run its course. So these movements are good. And I've seen them come and go over the decades, but none of them have turned it around or has the potential to turn around such as um, a prayerful, obedient disciple-making movement can. The, uh, but the danger will be, as a number of disciples grow, human beings love to congregate. We're relational people. And so we'll come together in bigger, bigger groups and we'll then form, we'll form, we'll form churches, congregations. And that's great. But uh, you have to be very careful how you maintain that intentionality mm. of reaching out, looking for that person of peace, helping them to reproduce. Otherwise, we're stuck. That's probably enough, Dave. Wow. <laughs> that's that's,
0: that's great, to, great to feed on. Stuart, thank you so much for your input. One last question, 60 seconds worth, a word of encouragement. For the Praxis workers and those who are making disciples out there, what would you like to say to them?
1: I'd say, go for it. Don't give up. Never give up. Winston Churchill said to a group of schoolboys at Harrow, never give up. Never give up. Never give up. You'll be discouraged. You'll be criticized. You'll have all sorts of things happen to you. But, hey, you don't even need to pray about making disciples. We know the Lord heals he is us and we're perfectly in the center of his will in making Jesus' first, last command our top priority. His last command to us was make disciples. No matter what form or how they collect or their color or their wealth or whatever just make disciples. That's what he asked us to do and whether the Lord favors you by leading a movement or whether there's just a few people. The most satisfying thing in your life, whether anyone else notices it all that you have been used of God to bring some people into the kingdom of God and they in turn are going on bringing others and nothing nothing compares with the satisfaction of that Thank you Stuart